Welcome to Carnival Personnel Sideshow. I'm Jacques. I'm Joe. And we, I don't know how anybody even listens, let alone gets conned into coming into your basement, but we've done it again, Joe. Yay. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we've had a bunch of guests, but I gotta say, probably the only guest that we've had who has a legit Wikipedia page is our friend John. Do you know you do, you do the Wikipedia page? Uh, I might have known that at one point. Okay. But I, I, I didn't remember it until you, until you just pointed that out, Shock. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's our way of welcoming our friend John. So John, say hello to the good people. Hello, all you good people. Now say hello to the rest of the listeners. Hello, rest of listeners. <laughs> um, so uh, John and I have known each other, I think, since 2004 is when we first met. Um, you had a layover at the LAX airport, and management and I came by to see you. Uh, I forget where you were flying to and from, but uh, uh, management is the wife. Yep, I, I I listen. I figured that out in earlier episodes that I've listened to. Uh, previous podcast uh, guest Sam, who was here for the DC Television Universe show, that is one of your favorites. The, I got the most laundry done that week. It was uh, incredible. So I thank you for that. So we have John on for a number of reasons, but I'm going to go over a couple things and jump in and tell me how off I am when I read down your bio, most of which I knew already, none of which has come from a Wikipedia, uh, which, by the way, you know, maybe we'll update your Wikipedia page for you after this show or during. <laughs> or during. Or during. Um, so, uh, our good friend John grew up in Chicago, son of a judge, and I believe your first game was doing, or your first job was doing magic for kid parties. Actually, that was my second job because before I worked as a magician, I did do magic for kids parties, but before that starting when I was maybe five or six years old, I helped my father sell stamps to collectors on weekends. That was my first job. How do you sell stamps to collectors? So there used to be a hobby of stamp collecting. Which is called? Stamp collecting. Stamp collecting. <laughs> I know that's a yeah. big word for Actually, it, there's a big word, yeah. phil philately or philatelist. God bless you. A philatelist, I believe, is a I've stamp I've been asking collector. my wife for philatelist for some time now, and... <laughs> So my dad, his his weekend job, he had a side business of selling stamps to collectors, and so we'd buy stamps and we'd go to little shows around the Midwest and sell them. And I learned a lot of lessons doing that uh, with my dad about how to deal with the public, deal with customers, treat customers well, do a lot of math, stuff like that. Skills that came in handy later. We'll right. Yes. So, uh, but my second real job was was doing magic shows at kids' parties and restaurants, things like that. And and somehow, after spending all this time with kids and at parties, you decided to be a father later in life. That didn't scar you forever. Uh, no, I, I I always wanted to be a father. And and then now with six kids and stepkids, it's it seems like a small group compared to some of the parties I used right. to work on. And then you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you applied to MIT and went out to do an MIT visit, and your father didn't even know. You just went by yourself from Chicago to Boston. Uh, uh, sort of. Not exactly true. I did go by myself. I'd never been on an airplane before, and I bought my own ticket, but my father knew I was going. Okay. My father and mother knew. It wasn't like I was sneaking out, but still, I was uh, 16, and I, you know, I went over to the travel agent and took money I'd earned. You know, probably doing magic shows and selling stamps, and and um, and I came out to visit at MIT, and 
And so you were at MIT, and uh, and then after MIT, and this is this is you know, um, I don't know how long after MIT my management came into your orbit, but. John was when when management started working with John, he had a one year old son at the time, uh, no other kids, and he was tinkering with a few friends in the garage. Um, I guess you had a, a previous venture that didn't go exactly as you hoped, and he was this was your second venture, and that little tinkering with a few friends in your garage, which sounds like something out of every Silicon Valley story you hear turned out to be SolidWorks. That's right. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't in the garage exactly, but it was in the spare bedroom in the living room and, and my friends and co-founders living rooms. Yeah. We started building this piece of software and that's what became SolidWorks. And so in the first year that management was with you, uh, you went from having a one-year-old boy to a two-year-old boy and a one-year-old daughter anything else happened in that time frame in the first like year 18 months of of uh management working with you yeah we got we were fortunate enough to grow SolidWorks and have first off a, a ton of interesting customers which i always think of as the best part of what we did at SolidWorks but we also uh had sold the company and we were acquired by Dassault System of France a much bigger software company and SolidWorks is what type of software Computer-aided design software. CAD. And so uh, we, we, we won't tell everybody, like, because we won't embarrass you, how much you sold the company for. But let's just say... It's a lot. And line from the jerk. Every time we can quote the jerk, we will. And so... Uh, th- but you, you sold the company, but you stayed on as president or CEO. What, what, but you stayed on as kind of the figurehead, or not the figurehead, like the face of the company. And I remember management talking about how much travel and how much great travel that you guys got to do going over to France. Um, I think you guys went to London. I know when you would like have different conferences and stuff like that. That was uh, it was a very exciting time, I guess, for you. It, it was an exciting time, and and I so I stayed on as CEO of the SolidWorks business, which they kept running as a subsidiary kind of business. And we were, were fairly independent in our own business. And I was CEO for many years. And then I, I stayed with the company, but as more of the figurehead you're talking about, but that was many years later. So there was acquisition, a long period of CEO, and then, a, then another period where I was a group executive, which no, was yeah. the cushiest job on earth, <laughs> I might add. And I did travel a ton. Right. And you said it's great travel. Well, it's great like the first few times you go to Paris, but uh, you know after you go every month for a year, and you, you, I was traveling so much, you just get tired of it. And that was one of the reasons I stepped down as CEO. And uh, you took a year. You you left SolidWorks a, a few years back. You took a year to kind of figure out what you were going to do. I think you knew what you were going to do all along. Uh, I think an NDA said you couldn't figure out what you're going to do all along. And somehow out of that, you, uh, you started the new venture, which um, I think, you, rem- I think you, you wanted to call it Foundry, but I don't know. It became, is Foundry the same thing that became Onshape? Yeah, we, okay. we had talked about a lot of names. You have a great memory, Foundry being one of them. But now Onshape, we, so we started Onshape because we felt it was time to build, yet again, a new generation of, of computer-aided design of CAD and related tools for data management, collaboration, that the whole suite of tools for product development 
honestly had to be rebuilt if we were going to really take as a leap forward for what we could do for our customers, who are the some of the coolest product designers in the world. And and so that was that. That's the story of Onshape, building another and, and generation. Two two and a half years in now. Two how how no how actually well we're. Well, let's say we're we're six years in, but that's from a standing start, like right. in a conference room, and our pro, you know our in some ways our tool set was really only fully, you know, fully deployed last year. Right. So we were we started selling um, before then, but it was with a subset of all the capabilities we wanted to have. We still are adding tons of new features in different areas, but all the major modules are in place now, and that that really only happened last year. So this is all exciting. Some of our friends, like you know Biff, who's a big tech guy, is probably you know, you know, I think I met him and, and and knows all this, and uh, and we could talk CAD forever. But I, that's, I can talk CAD you can forever. Talk, I can, I can fake like I know what's going on, like nobody's business. Um, so I, I I could nod and, and and say a few things here and there, but that is not why you're here. I could talk any piece of the CAD world forever. I could talk data management and release management and revision control. I could talk collaboration and viewing tools and product development analytics. I could talk about any of those forever, but I'm not going to, but Thank I want you. you to know I could. <laughs> All right? But, uh, but we wanted you here. Uh, we, we're going to get into the background of the funding for SolidWorks, where 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 what I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, because um, if I'm wrong, it's still a great story. Where where some of the funding came from, uh, and you're here uh, not just to eat the chips and and smile uh, nicely at Joe. Oh, I thought you meant I was going to be eating the chips and smiling <laughs> nicely at John. Because that's what I'm doing can. right Thank now. Thank you. Uh, but here's here here is why John does. Um, a lot of speaking things, and his claim to fame, aside from being a nice father and a good person and all that stuff, yada, yada, yada. John was part of the MIT 1980 card counting team, uh, the Blackjack team, that has borne out uh, documentaries such as Game Show Network's Anything to Win and the History Channel's documentary Breaking Vegas and, you know, also, you know, most people know the movie 21, which, you know, we'll get into. Um, the main character in the movie 21, I guess, is a, a collection of the personalities from the team. But uh, but we'll get into it. And if I can find links, we'll post them. But Breaking Vegas was the documentary that I uh, I think I liked most of them. Yeah, I liked it most, too. And that's not just because I'm in it. Okay. <laughs> you know, I happen to be in it, but I like And interestingly... Um, this all the scenes that I'm in in that documentary were shot at my office. They came out to my office. I just didn't really have time. I was so busy. And I'm like, well, if you come out here. And so they're like, yeah, we'll come out there. And they came out one day at the end of the day, and we sat on a conference room. So that was kind of interesting. Um, yeah, it was a great, it was a great adventure. You know? And just to, you know, when people say, oh, um, it was the Blackjack team that, that I in, in funded SolidWorks. That's not exactly accurate because I had thanks Wikipedia. <laughs> well, it's it's not it's not completely wrong either. The way I would put it is because I had made money playing blackjack, I was able to take the year off with no income to start SolidWorks and modest amounts of spending on like 
a little bit of office space, a phone system. Back in those days, you bought a phone system. You know, you couldn't really imagine this today, like a cabinet. And it was, you know, it was expensive. And so I had some room, SolidWorks, excuse me, um, Blackjack gave me room to breathe financially so that I could I could start the company. But it's not like, it's not like I took Blackjack money, I, you know, and just put it in the, into the treasury of the company. I didn't do that. It was a little bit different. It gave me the the footing I needed to be able to to spend time because no one would invest in me back then. I got turned down everywhere. But anyway, back to blackjack. Yeah, it was an incredible adventure, and uh, um, and uh, I you know I played for years, and and the stories that you see in the in the, all the places you mentioned are a combination of truth and fiction to some degree mixed together. The Breaking Vegas documentary has the best, um, has the highest ratio of truth to fiction. I would say. What so, it it looked like getting onto the team was an elaborate challenge. Like not just any smart kid who came in and did it. And and this is where it might be true. It might not. Like things like um, testing people under pressure, like dumping water on them as they're trying to. Uh, you know, count cards and stuff. Which like is now that. like a game show on Fox. Like really? that's, no, it's like the premise of <laughs> yeah, like most exactly. of these modern game shows, you know, put the contestants under physical duress and then have them answer trivia questions. No, we never dumped water on anyone. And what, do you, what was the phrase you just used? You said it was really hard to make the team really tough. Right. It, was it, it a weeding you know, out process? Um, it, sort of, but it was more like attrition. You know, it was more like people would drop out because... Basically, blackjack was a lot of work and a lot of study, and it's kind of like a class where, you know, yes, you have to have a certain amount of skill with math, but the math is shockingly simple. This is, I'll tell you some of the, the truths of blackjack. The math is not that complicated. You know, you're not doing, you're not doing, you know, calculus in your head. You're doing things like, well, adding or subtracting one to a number you know, most people can slow do that. down. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you can do things like seven, six, five, six, five, six, seven, six, I know those seven, numbers, eight, <laughs> like that. If you can do that for 12 hours a day, and if you can do math like, you know, 15 divided by three minus one times 200. And the thing is, it's even easier than that because you're doing a lot of the same problems over and over. You know, like you're, they're not random problems. You're, you're, always, you're doing a lot of math with numbers like 10, 11, 12, 14, divided by numbers like two and a half, three, three and a half. So you almost, you almost memorize some of them, and it's just not that hard. What is hard, and there's not a lot of memory either. You only need about as much memory as it would take to type without looking at the keys. So if you can type without looking at the keys I'm on the out. keyboard, okay, <laughs> no, no, some no, people are, but you know, now the trick is you have to be able to do that stuff super reliably. Like you, you, you have to be able to, to not make mistakes. It's kind of a skill like typing. If I said you learn to type, you'd say, I could learn to type. Now do it, you know, 80 words a minute, hundred words a minute, whatever, some high speed. And you're like, well, maybe I could learn that. Now do it with no errors. For hours at a time, and that's kind of and you and yes, we did do the testing with the with distractions, not water, but we would do things like, like this part of the documentary is pretty accurate. You're dealing in a classroom. You'd set up like a fake casino table and deal decks of cards. In the middle, you'd come over to the player, the the te person being tested, and you'd say stuff like, 
oh, can I get your name, sir, for writing? Because people in the casino would do that. Can I get your name? And what's your birth date? You know, you have to say, like, you know, your birthday. And then they'll say, like, like, um, like, oh, wait, did you say, you know, did you say, was that 326.59? And that's in the middle of you doing, you know, 15 divided by 3. You know? Right. So you have to keep that stuff straightened out or, you know, or you're going to fail the test. And um, uh, so, so the testing was pretty rigorous, but it really was a test of persistence and willing to practice as much as it was talent. It's not like we were looking for the one in a million math genius or something. It wasn't like that. It was more like I say, like learning to type fast and working at it. Was MIT on board with this? Um, I don't think MIT really knew, you know, whatever MIT is. When you say, you mean like the administration of MIT? I don't think they really knew much about it. It wasn't a famous thing. So you didn't have like uniforms and like your names on the back of the No, we didn't have uniforms. You know that. It was, you know, we used to meet in a classroom at night, but that wasn't officially designated by MIT. It would just be we we would go and sit in an empty classroom at night. Always Thursday nights. Now, the... The, the team was around. How long was the team around before you got to MIT? So the team that I know, and, there, and, and everything I'm going to tell you about Blackjack is, is should end with, as far as I know. Because there's always things I don't know. There could, I, when people say something absolute about it, I've learned enough to know there's a lot of things going on that other people don't necessarily want to talk about. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, the team as I know it, as far as I know... The team I was on sort of started the origins go back to the late 70s, okay, with these these guys. Um, I don't know if I should mention – it's always hard for me to remember who in the blackjack community is public about their involvement and who keeps their role quiet and doesn't want their name out there. But, you know, let's say there was Mr. X and Mr. Y <laughs> – there's uh, who who got the team started around the time that Resorts International opened the first casino in Atlantic City, and they they started so late seventies, and I came along in not that I remember, but January of eighty four. <laughs> That's when I saw a sign at the student center, a paper sign. You know, I could tell you this whole story. Um, if you want, please, yes, please do. I'll warn you that people ask me sometimes, like. You know, is it hard to get you to talk about blackjack? And I say, no, no, it's hard to get me to stop talking about blackjack. <laughs> okay, so there's there's a little uh, a little joke, but anyway, the I, I was walking through the MIT Student Center. I saw a paper sign up, you know, hanging there in the bulletin board or something. It said, "Earn two to six thousand dollars over the next six months playing blackjack with a professional team, and if you're interested, come to r- room." Two dash everything at MIT is numbers. Two dash one, I forget the exact number, but like two dash one forty four, Thursday night, seven p.m. And I thought I was a magician. I thought I understood a lot about cards, and I'm like, this probably can't work. It's probably some kind of scam. But you know, that card trick part of my mind was interested, and and my dad had um, had a background, you know, in gambling, not professionally exactly, but he was an enthusiastic and good handicapper of horses. And um, I understand was a great poker player, although I so, never so played So was Tony Harding. <laughs> oh. Great handicapper of horses. Oh. I will uh, not cut that joke out. <laughs> that's... Uh, um, uh, my, anyway. Um, so anyway, there was some of that in my background. I thought, this looks really interesting. I'll go. And I went to that meeting, very skeptical, and that's what began my my career as a blackjack player. 
And you stayed through through your was this your freshman year at at MIT? Oh gosh, no! I couldn't have done it as a hardworking undergraduate <laughs> with a full course load. This was this was coincidental. You know, sometimes life things happen. I was a grad student, okay, which is generally a more relaxed life than an undergrad. And then January of '84 is also when my advisor t- started a year sabbatical in Japan. <laughs> He went to Japan, my advisor, and the lab where I worked, the, the floor of the building at MIT that I worked on started a major renovation, and we were located to a different area, and our computer had been dismantled. You know, I say our computer. This was before you had a computer in your backpack. You know, there was a computer lab. And so basically, it meant that there wasn't a lot to do around the lab. So this is fortunate timing for me. You know, and I did take, you know, I was taking like one or two classes as a grad student, but... It was, you know, it was at a lull in my student life there. I couldn't have done it as an undergraduate. And did it become a real job? Uh, it became a real um, side gig job. A pretty, in- I'd call it by today's language, I think. That's what you younger folks call it, right? A side gig. Right. And so, uh, you know, a second job, but a pretty intense one. So most weekends, you know, I would go probably every other weekend or so. Sometimes I'd go five or six weeks in a row. It was usually on weekends. And practice almost every day, and Thursday nights were our weekly meetings. Yeah. And and you you go to Atlantic City or Vegas or both. So a lot more to Atlantic City. The story is about Vegas. You know, people are like, "Oh, the team went to Vegas," but Atlantic City was closer, and we were really cheap. So even <laughs> though we were betting all this money and winning a lot of money, we were basically cheap people, and so. We would drive to Atlantic City, and the money that you win in Atlantic City is just as good as yes, the money. Yes, it turns you win in out same money. It, really. it turns out hmm. the money is the same. Yeah, wow. very good point. Okay. And, and so, so we did go to Vegas at times, and there were there were always different reasons you would go to different places. Um, but I probably, you know, I probably went to Atlantic City three or four times for every time I went to Vegas. Uh, I want to get back into the breaking Vegas and what was real and what was not. So yeah, so there was a big scene in that where they had a kid, uh, like you know, playing like three games simultaneously, playing three different hands simultaneously, and they dumped the water on his head, and you know he, you know, uh, you know, just just to test him under pressure. Uh, some of the other stuff, and I think I know the answers, but you know, uh, All Star Tommy doesn't, so I'll ask. Um, were you in Las Vegas and rounded up by security and taken to a part of the building where there aren't cameras? I was never taken to a part of the building where there weren't cameras. Okay. I was rounded up by security <laughs> a couple of times, not that often, but no, 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 um, um, you know, no, no, uh, dark, got, violent no, places. Like no. you thought, like, no, just I'm like, not here's the door, back. son. <laughs> no, it was more like, well, there were different. There were different levels of getting what we call getting barred, it means getting kicked out basically, mm-hmm. getting barred. And so you could get like soft barred or hard barred. And so there's a range. Like soft barring would be like, hey, look, Mr. H, that's what they might call me there, you know, Mr. H, um, you know, just, just really don't want to book your action anymore at the blackjack table. You know, you're welcome to play other games or whatever, or have dinner on us. You know, like it could be really nice about it. And then at the other extreme, the hard bar is like the security guard says, come with us. And you go to the back room and they, they like read you this card. 
this little card, like kind of like a Miranda card. They're like, under Nevada statute such and so, you're being barred from the premises of, you know, Caesar's Palace, Caesar's World. Should you enter onto the premises again, you will be arrested for trespassing. Do you understand? You know, and but they don't do anything else. They're just security. But you, you didn't think you were going to get roughed up. No, but it's 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 nerve wracking. It's kind of like you know if you if you get stopped by the police for speeding, or you you know, or you no, no, try we're, to we're, we're white. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or if you try to sneak, you know, when you were younger, you try and sneak in somewhere with a fake ID or something. It's that kind of a feeling. It's not like oh my gosh, I'm going to, you know. My I'm, life is ruined. <laughs> yeah, you know, like people are like, well, isn't it a violent place? You know, I saw this on TV. It's kind of like thinking about being in a tavern. You know, you go to a bar. I mean, you know, this on TV, you know, guys come up to you, you know, tap you on the shoulder and, you know, hit you over the head with a beer bottle and stuff. But that's never happened to me in a bar. I mean, Jacques, maybe, you know. Hey, we we went different. to different bars. John. Yeah, but, you <laughs> know. Happened to two and happened to others. Yeah. <laughs> with Jacques, Jacques, it probably hasn't happened within the last week anyway, but. Not that um, I remember. <laughs> so look, so so uh, so no, that never happened. You know, the the violence in the movie never happened to me or anyone I knew directly. The betrayal never happened. You know, I'm getting into some of the fictional parts. I mean, people getting drunk and playing. No, that that never happened. You know, yeah, kind of, uh, uh, you know, we just wouldn't do that. And do you think? Did you guys go in teams and and work together at the tables, or were you all individuals? How how you know? And what was the line that they thought you crossed? And it's a line simply, you're not supposed to win? No. Um, so let me take those in order. Okay. So the answer is we could play either way, either individually or as a group, usually as a group. And there were reasons to do that. It depends on the conditions. First of all, it depends if you have other teammates with you. If, if you're there alone, then you play alone. And any of us could play or most of us could play alone. But the reasons to play with teammates are are you can – you can have um, a more efficiency, and you can cover your play a little better. Mm -hmm. You can you can uh, look a little less like you're a card counter by signaling other people in, okay. which is in the movie, pretty reasonably accurate. Right. There, you know, I you know we're in the casino, the three of us. I see a good count. Instead of me standing behind the table and jumping in, I call you over, and you're like presumably new to the situation, and you sit down a little better that way. Um, and then you asked the second question after that was, you asked about, did we work as a team? And then you asked another question. What was it? I'm trying to think of what it was. But one of the things I was thinking, yeah. did you have quotas? Like when you got sent out, did you get, here's $10,000, you know, no. you got Oh, you asked back. how we got, what, how they, how, oh, yeah, what was yeah, the trigger for them to kick us out? Basically, once they figure out you're using a card counting system, or any sort of system like that, but card counting was the only one they really knew about. I'll get to other systems if you want to talk about really interesting stuff, mm. uh, things you can't read about in books and TV shows and movies. But the the card counting system, once they figure out your card counting and you're good at it, they don't want you there, whether winning or losing. Winning, ironically, is seldom the reason they know you're a, what we call uh, – these days is called an advantage player. Because regular players win all the time, and card counters lose all the time. And so winning streak doesn't necessarily mean that you're a skilled player. Now, at times, it could get a little ridiculous, and it would signal you. So they might say, hey, look, you know, you've been here 14 times in the last two years, and you've won 13 of them. <laughs> we don't know what you're doing, but we don't want any more of this. You know, So that happened to one of my 
associates, oh. actually. But usually it was more about them being drawn to your play because of a suspicious pattern of activity. So if, if I count cards and you know how to count cards and you watch me play, you'll know if I'm counting cards. You can observe someone else doing it and they don't want people who are good at it to do it. They don't mind if you think you're counting cards and you're not so good at it, then they welcome you in. Actually, card counting, as I understand it, card counting was the best thing to ever happen for the casinos. Right. I've heard that. Yeah. Because, because people, everybody yeah. thought they could do it. Yeah. If you're good enough, you can win. You know, you tell that to a player and, oh my gosh, you know, you know, people are like, well, I'm pretty good. No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, most people aren't pretty good enough to win. I can, I can t as far as I know, I can tell you that through observation. So basically it's detecting that you play well, regardless of win and loss, that will kick you out. Also recognition, if they... If they find out that, you know, if they find you, it used to be a picture in like a, a, a book or a name, you know, they, they run your name through the computer, you know, and you've been kicked out somewhere else. That's a big problem. Right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm jumping a little ahead. I had a couple more questions, but I don't want to forget this one. Go. So, John, you, you're, 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 you're a larger person. You can't blend in. Yes. And, and, and you've been barred from some places. I believe there's a couple people that you're friends with who to this day are barred at places, but they are very... Um, can blend in a lot, a lot easier. Yes. Different... different Physical makeups can blend in a little more easily. You're right. I'm a pretty large person, and I stand out. I also didn't have options like dressing as a woman that, is, see, is would, probably not my... In my head, yeah. I'm like, he yeah. has an Asian friend yeah. who dresses in drag and goes into casinos that they've been yeah. barred from. And in my head, I'm like, okay... Anything to win. <laughs> Anything. Oh yeah, that 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 wouldn't even you know that wouldn't even bat an eye with the you know people I played with. Yeah, he dressed up as a woman, fake mustache, um, colored hair, you know, all kinds of things to play. Yeah, the dress up as so a woman. If you're going as Mario, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you 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 try to change your appearance. I would just do things like change my clothing and style of clothing. But, but you're still six. Five, six, four. Six, four. Yeah, yeah it was, you know, six, four, to... you know, 200. And a very unattractive pounds. woman, I will say it right well, now. Well, you know, now be careful now because these days we, you know, we don't want to make judgments about uh, stereotypical appearances. All I'll say is disguise was not a particularly strong option for me, as it might be for people. Also, some people just can cover a larger range of ages. Like I have a friend of mine who I swear back in the day, he was probably in his mid late 20s and he could look. 20, he could look 40. You know, it just depended on how he dressed up and whether, you know, sprinkle a little gray in the hair. He was a very convincing 40-year-old businessman. And uh, one time, one of the employees of the casino, I was having dinner. It's something you did sometimes. They'd invite you to dinner. I didn't like to do that because it cut into my playing time. But right. once in a right. while, you do it. And so this, like, host in the casino is having dinner. And he tells me, oh, I've got this other customer you know, and he, he gives me his fake name. You know, I won't say, you know, mm -hmm. he's, he's this billionaire's nephew. That was his kind of cover story. And he says, and he names the person. And he says, yeah, he calls me, he calls me from Paris and says, I'm flying in on the Concord. You know, and I know this is my friend, okay, who 
he doesn't know we we know each other. I'm just I'm just laughing because my friend is actually flying in on People's Express, you know, <laughs> in steerage class, the which, cheapest which possible was way. the Concord of. No, uh, I think they were a defunct sponsor of our <laughs> yeah. podcast, People's Express. <laughs> you are right; they are. Yeah. What? Well, on our on our regular podcast, when we do breaks, we we do something called the defunct sponsor of the week, where we play oh, a commercial from a, a company a, that does a company oh, that is defunct. And I, we did do Express. a People's Express. Uh, oh, that's hilarious! Yeah. So, so uh, uh, anyway, back to your questions. What? Yeah. No. So, so I remember you saying that because you. Uh, there's a couple I wanted to get in here. Um, now, was there a quote or like? You guys are sent out with X amount of money, and the expectation is you come back with more than you took. And how did you? Okay, if the club gave you ten thousand to go out with, were you expected to pay that back and then keep a percentage above it? How? How did this whole thing work? Okay, I'll try and give you. I'll short as quickly as I can. So we would form a project called a bank, a pool of money and a time period that we would generally be trying to double it. And the number, the size of the banks I was involved in ranged from 100,000 to maybe three-quarter million, what you would start with. And, and I'm going to simplify a little bit here just for purposes. Of, and you'd say, let's try over six months to double that money. You'd take as much money as you felt. It was like ammo, you know. You, you'd, you'd take as much as you felt you needed for the place you were going, the types of limits you would encounter, and so forth. And you would go into the casino. You did not have a quota. You did not um, keep a share of the winnings right away. What you would do is you would play and try to generate uh, what we called EV, expected value. Basically, place bets that had favorable advantage to the team. So I might place a bet. I might bet $1,000 with a 1% edge. Okay, that's $10 in expected value. To the team now, I might win or lose a thousand dollars. It's the same ten dollars. I get ten dollars in EV on my on my sheet. We would write down our play on a sheet. I still have some of those sheets, which was really cool. You kept that in your pocket, and that was part of learning to play was remembering what you did. You had to write this stuff down. So, if the three of us went into the casino for an hour or two, we would each remember what we did, and when we got out, we'd write it down, and then. Later, when we got back to Boston, we'd add up the credit. So you'd earn credit for those plays. You might win or lose $20,000, but you might generate, you know, $1,270 in expected value, and that was your credit. Because we really didn't, the one thing that didn't matter to what you got paid was how much you won or lost, ironically. That's kind of hard for you to understand. It's hard, yeah. 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 But think about if you ran a casino. Okay, if you ran a casino, you would probably incent people to get a lot of players in the door. You wouldn't say, oh, you know, that player you brought in lost money and the guy you brought in won. You'd say, you know, look, for every player you get in the door, I'll pay you because on average, you're going to, if you're the casino, on average, the players are going to lose. If you're us, on average, we're going to win. And we would audit your play. We would check you out, test you to be sure your play was advantageous to a very high level of confidence. And so we would, score people on essentially the amount of good play that they did. And then at the end of the six months, let's say, and again, I'm simplifying a little, we would say, okay, we actually won. Say we doubled the bank. We started with $300,000 and we ended with $600,000. We have $300,000 in profit. 
half of that, 150,000, would get distributed to the players based on how much credit, EV credit they got. This may be a little more detail than you want, like kind of like how many points you had earned. Mm -hmm. And then the other half would be distributed to the investors based on what share they invested in the original money. And who, who were the investors to get this bankroll? So at the beginning, the investors were all people I didn't know, friends of the organizers of the team. I certainly didn't invest. By the time, you know, very quickly into it, the investors were only the players because the players had enough money to invest. And so it was the same group of people. It was just a different allocation based on how much you invest. So you could be an investor and then earn points on that. And then also your EV, you'd earn right. points on exactly. that. Right, exactly. And different people would invest and play in different relative amounts depending on who you know and who you were and what your circumstances and time were and so forth. Well, So if somebody makes a team, how do, you, how do they stay on the team or how long, how, how much leash do you give them? It's like, dude, you've gone there five times and you've come back a loser four out of five times. Or, or, you know, what was there, or once you were on, you were on? I think that, that I, really ha I really remember it being largely a, a um, self-selective process, a mutual process when people would leave the team. Anyone, we never really told anyone they were off the team that I can remember. It's possible we did for egregious things. But it was more like you had to earn your license to play. So you could be on the team, but you're not going to make any real money until you've You've, you've been what we call checked out, the, the test, until you could right. pass the test. And checking out, by the way, was a very cool process because after you'd play 50 decks in the classroom, you know, I just, I'm going to go on a little tangent here. Like We I, don't allow tangents not that, on this podcast. I know, Jacques, Jacques has thing. total attention lock at all times. <laughs> um, but anyway, I'm going to go on a little tangent and talk about the checkout because I think you'll find it interesting. So you play 50 decks nearly perfectly in the classroom with all these distractions like, oh, can I get your name for a rating? Or is that four people at seven o'clock for dinner and trying to confuse you, you know, and stuff. And you do all that stuff perfectly, okay? Playing with betting the chips, playing multiple hands in the classroom. And that meant you were ready to go to the casino and be handed like, you know, $100 to, as we'd say, flat bet $5, which is like the lowest you know, level of, you know, it's like it's your driver's permit. Yeah. Like that's like, you can, you know, you can go back and forth in the parking lot when no cars are around. This is, this is like, this would be like passing a high speed emergency racing maneuvers course on a practice track. And then you go to the real place and you're like, okay, only in the parking lot in daylight when no one's around, you know, it's so like you feel so qualified, but then we would start again. And then you'd have to be watched in the casino by somebody more experienced and you'd have to you actually had to pay for those watching hours as a new player you would be debited now you didn't have to pay out of your pocket but right. later on you paid back with credit you earned because the senior players would have to take time to watch you and so it was such a rigorous testing program that by the time you kind of earned your so that was really what it was about we wouldn't really kick you out if you kept coming and i can remember some people would take incredibly long periods to kind of earn their license. And other people did it really fast. We had this one guy, I still remember this guy, who was like a, a, a PhD candidate at MIT in physics. And he was just really good at the technical part of counting. And he passed the test very quickly. Now, he wasn't the top money earner, though. We'll get to that in a minute about why that is. But And then there was another person who just kept trying for like, I'm going to say, two years 
and just kept plugging away. And we didn't, you know, and so, and then people would leave the team, you know, it's a grind, you know, it's not real life. It's like people would eventually leave. So, so I can't recall a time where somebody was losing so much that we said, you know, you're off the team. We might've said, you know, what's going on? Let's check the guy out. Or we, you know, I, I, I don't, we, we are always worried about fraud. You know, I mean, the easiest, the biggest problem you have is it's a cash business and right. someone could come back and say, I lost 10 grand and they actually put 10 grand in their pocket. I was going to ask you if yeah. there was any sort of like, uh, there's always that lingering doubt. Like, are there, is there a temptation to shave your winnings off of what you're reporting? Yeah, so I think like in a lot of groups that are very, you know, trust-based, you know, it's sort of like asking, you know, is one of the soldiers in your army unit working for the other side, you know, Mm, we're going to shoot you in the back, you know, and you just, it's not that serious. I shouldn't say that, actually. It's not life or death, but, you know, it's like it was one of your business partners going to take money. All I'd say is we went through such intense experiences together in the training and the getting ready and the constant watching and you just got a feeling of confidence that the people around you were the real deal. Tune in next week for part two of Carnival Personnel's sideshow, Blackjack. <laughs>